0: You can open your Bibles to the text I just read in John 15. We'll be looking closely at verses 7 to 17. Identifying the fruit that abides. Vine branches are good for nothing except bearing fruit. You can't use wood of vine branches to construct a house or to build furniture Very easily, at least not the sturdy kind. It's too soft for that. Vine branches are not the wood of choice for woodworkers. You you won't see many coat racks with pegs made out of vine branches. The, The only use for vine branches is bearing fruit. A grapevine branch is good for nothing except producing grapes. So if a vine branch isn't of the fruit-bearing variety, for whatever reason, the only thing left to do with it is to, to use it for fuel, for a fire perhaps. That's what the Lord tells Ezekiel, actually. In the opening verses of Ezekiel 15, God says, "...how is the wood of a vine branch different from that of a branch from any of the trees of the forest?" Is wood ever taken from it, that is from the vine branch, to make anything useful? Do they make pegs from it to hang things on? And after it's thrown on the fire as fuel and the fire burns both ends and chars the middle, is it then useful for anything? If it was not useful for anything when it was whole, how much less can it be made into something useful when the fire has burned it and it is charred? Therefore, this is what the sovereign Lord Says, as I have given the wood of the vine among the trees of the forest as fuel for the fire, so will I treat the people living in Jerusalem. I will set my face against them. So that's another passage from the Old Testament about the vine that was unfaithful. And the difference between the Old Covenant and the New Covenant is the difference between the respective vines. The old covenant vine was Israel and Israel failed to bear fruit and God threw them into the fire. The new covenant vine is Jesus and Jesus will not fail to produce fruit bearing branches. Jesus is the true vine and he grows true branches. The old covenant promises though that that the new covenant will have a true vine with fruit bearing branches. In fact, just one example later in Ezekiel, I just read from Ezekiel fifteen, later in Ezekiel chapter thirty six, God says this Ezekiel thirty six, twenty four to twenty seven for I will take you out of the nations, I will gather you from all the countries and bring you back into your land, I will sprinkle clean water on you, and you will be clean. I will cleanse you from all your impurities and from all your idols. I will give you a new heart and put a new spirit in you. I will remove from you your heart of stone and give you a heart of flesh. And I will put my spirit in you and move you to follow my decrees and be careful to keep my laws. Bobby read a similar passage earlier in the liturgy, and that wasn't even planned, on, from Jeremiah on God giving his new covenant people, that new heart to obey him. And here in this old covenant prophecy from Ezekiel, God promised a time in the future when he would live inside of his people, among his people, but but the text is, is, is actually targets individuals, inside individual believers of this new covenant. A time when he would abide in them and cause them to bear the fruit of obedience. So John 15 is is a fulfillment of this. John 15 is a new covenant passage. It, it not only fulfills the the vine verses in the Old Testament that we've been reading over the last few sermons in this series, it also fulfills the Old Testament promises that speak of a new covenant in which God will make his home among his people. Among his church, among his bride. In the hearts of each person. So in, in John, we can back up, in John 14 and 15, we find out that all three persons of the Trinity live inside of us. At the end of John fourteen, seventeen, Jesus refers to the indwelling of the Spirit. And that's, that's what Ezekiel is explicitly talking about, God putting his spirit inside of believers. And in John 14, 17, Jesus says, you know him, that is, you know the spirit of truth, for he dwells with you and will be in you. So that's direct fulfillment of Ezekiel 36. In John 14, 20, Jesus refers to the indwelling of the Father and the Son. He says, I am in the Father and you are in me. And I am in you. So there's this, this mutual indwelling of God, the persons of God, and even his people get caught up in this community. And last time, two weeks ago, we looked at John fifteen four, where Jesus says, Abide in me and I in you, as the branch cannot bear fruit of itself unless it abides in the vine. Neither can you unless you abide in me. And in that last verse, John 15, 4, Jesus places squarely in your lap the responsibility of abiding in your Savior, in Jesus. And even the responsibility of making sure that Jesus abides in you, that you are a home for God. Now, Now, we know from the rest of Scripture that no one can abide in Jesus. No one can make sure Jesus abides in, in them in their own strength, by their own resources. God must give the ability to do this. God must always give the ability to do what he commands. You might remember the prayer of Augustine that got him in trouble with Pelagius. And it started the whole controversy. Augustine prayed, "Give what you command and command what you will." In other words, give me the ability to do whatever you command me to do, because I have to have that ability from you, and then command whatever you will." So Augustine realized that apart from God's saving work inside of him, from the, working from the inside out, he would never. Be able to please God, to obey God, even to turn to God in faith at all. Augustine believed what Paul wrote in Philippians two twelve and thirteen. I mean twelve and thirteen. Work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. Verse thirteen, for it is God who works in you both to will and to work for his good pleasure. So everything that you do that's good, and that's according to God's will, is God's work 100% in you. So when Jesus says in John 15, 4, keep abiding in me and ensure that I keep abiding in you, he's not imagining that you can do this by means of your own spiritual resources. Nevertheless, he is commanding what he wills here. He's putting on you the obligation of abiding in him the obligation of making sure that he is abiding in you. Jesus lays on you the duty of bearing the fruit that flows from true faith and repentance. In verse five, Jesus says, he who abides in me and I in him bears much fruit. So what is this fruit? What, what, what is this fruit that Jesus is looking for? That's the question that our text answers today. What, what fruit are you called to bear? Now we could answer this question generally by saying that the fruit Jesus is looking for is, is obedience to all of his commandments. In fact we could say all the commandments of the Bible that we're supposed to obey. That's the fruit that, that Jesus is looking for. The great commission that we hear every week at the end of our service tells us to make disciples by baptizing individuals, and then by teaching these individuals that we baptize to obey everything, to obey all that Jesus has commanded us. But we can also answer this question more specifically from from our context here by looking at the four fruits that Jesus goes on to mention in the following verses, starting in verse 7. And these these four fruits... These specified fruits that Jesus is looking for are empowered prayer, obedient love, unspeakable joy, and then sacrificial love. These are the four fruits in verses 7 to 17. Empowered prayer, obedient love, unspeakable joy, and sacrificial love. Let's look at each one. The first fruit Jesus mentions is empowered prayer. This fruit is as much a promise as it is an imperative, a command. We see it in two places in our passage. Verse 7 says, If you abide in me and my words abide in you, you will ask whatever you desire and it shall be done for you. And then look down at verse 16 toward the end. You did not choose me, but I chose you and appointed you that you should go and bear fruit and that your fruit should abide, that whatever you ask the Father in my name, he may give you. If your connection to Jesus is, is like a healthy branch's connection to a vine, then prayer is like the nutrients flowing back and forth between that branch and the vine that it's connected to. Prayer is a natural result of your union with the vine, Jesus Christ. True disciples are vitally connected with with Christ. And that connection, that union, produces an intimate relationship that involves regular communication, as all relationships do. Every relationship is maintained and strengthened through regular communication, no relationship exists with, apart from some kind of interaction, communication. And the same is true of our relationship with Jesus. And, and, that, and the communication goes in both directions. It's a, it's a dialogue. Jesus communicates with you primarily through his word. Through his words, plural, as, as the text says. And we respond in prayer with our words. Verse 7 says, if you abide, if my words abide in you. Christians are those who have the words of Christ living, indwelling, abiding inside of them. These living and active words. We receive his words and we respond by praying. We intake, we breathe in his words, and we breathe out prayer. We, we respond by talking to God. The life of Jesus flows through his followers by means of his word. And that spiritual life produces a vibrant relationship. And it's a vibrant relationship of, of two-way communication. Both the vine dresser, God the Father... And the vine, God the Son, wield their words, if you will, in order to prune and prepare the blood-bought branches. They prepare them and and prune them for faithfulness, for fruitfulness. Up in verse 2, the Father does the pruning. And then in verse 3, Jesus does the pruning He says that true disciples are pruned because of the word that he speaks to them. The word clean in verse 3 could be, maybe should be, translated pruned. Same cognate, same word. So so the idea in verses 7 and 16 is that pruned branches sprout fruit. And one type of fruit is prayer. Not just prayer, but Spirit-filled, empowered prayer, which gives birth to answered prayer. When God's people pray, there will be answers. That's probably the most underestimated and underappreciated fact in the universe, that when God's people pray, there will be answers. God listens to the prayers of his faith-filled people. So think about how this cycle works. We receive the words of God. They teach us and train us. They command us and convict us and comfort us and correct us. They inform us. They reform us. They transform us. They increase our faith. Then in response to having God's living and active words inside of us, doing their work, we speak our words back to God. But if, if the cycle is working properly God hears his words in our words because our prayers are guided and shaped by the truths of scripture that are abiding in us. And therefore they are in line with God's will, with God's desires. God hears our prayers and responds joyfully. He responds favorably to our requests because they're offered up in the context of obedience to his word. As the word shapes our desires, our thoughts, our way of, our way of thinking and viewing everything, and, and, and the spirit forms us from the inside out, transforms us from the inside out, we ask more and more for those things that God cares about. God hears and answers those prayers. Jesus gave us this promise already back in chapter 14 and in other places. John 14, 13 and 14. And whatever you ask in my name, that I will do, that the Father may be glorified in the Son. And that's the the reason. So that the Father may be glorified in the Son. If you ask anything in my name, I will do it. So if you aren't seeing answered prayer, is it because... You're not praying, perhaps. Or is it perhaps because your prayers are not God-centered, not aimed at glorifying God? Are your requests centered on yourself, or are they driven by the words and the will of God? Or is your praying merely ritual, merely rote? Now there's a place for disciplined prayer that can sometimes feel that way and and you soldier on and, and you, you wait for the, the other times of prayer that feel more like what prayer should feel like. But but is your praying only that, only ritual, only at meal times? Or is it the overflow of a of a vital connection with Jesus that's ongoing, that's an ongoing dialogue? Is the life of the vine flowing through you in the form of intimate, God-glorifying, two-way communication with him? What's this kind of praying look and feel like? Well, it should look and feel a lot like, a lot like, not exactly like, but a lot like your relationships with other humans. Those, those relationships take time. They take work. They take intentionality. They, they require thought and planning and sacrifice. Your relationship with Christ is no different. If you don't work at it, joyfully, work at it, there, there won't be anything there, or there'll be very little there. And that's, and that's the main reason many Christians don't experience the, the kind of promises that that Jesus gives in association with prayer that, that, that he attaches to prayer, the promise of answered prayer they don 't work at cultivating that ongoing two way relationship with Jesus, which requires us to just to sit down or to stop moving or you know stop doing what we 're doing and to talk to god but this but this kind of Praying should also look and feel this is not a contradiction, this is a this is a compliment to to what I said. It should also look and feel a lot like breathing. You breathe, usually usually without thinking about it, as your blood pulses through your veins, giving your body life. When the words of God and the Spirit of God pulse through you. The natural thing for you to do, even the most natural thing for you to do, is to pray. You talk to God. You commune with God. And you talk to God about what's going on in your life, about what's going on in the world, about what you're reading in his word. A challenge comes up at work, and your first reaction is to mention it to God. You lose your keys and you mention it to God. A family member calls you to talk about something heavy. And you talk to God while you're talking to your relative. Prayer is as important to the soul as breathing is to the body. And you need both kinds of praying in your walk with Christ. Both kinds that I just mentioned. You need the intentional set-aside times of focused conversation with God, times when you you go to your prayer closet and you open your Bible and you give God your heart, soul, mind, and strength. But you also need the ongoing dialogue with God. Both of of these ways of, of talking to God are actually ways that you make God the center of your life. And that's the point here. The whole point of prayer is to bring glory to God. That's what Jesus says in this text. In the very next verse, look at verse eight. By this, so he's just talking about prayer. By this, my father is glorified that you bear much fruit so you will be my disciples. So this kind of praying, the kind that makes God The center of your life, the kind of praying that expresses your dependence on him, glorifies God. So does your praying, does your communication habits with God glorify God? Are you making time to communicate with Jesus? Is God the center of your thoughts throughout the day so that you do go to him not just about the big things but about the little things because you want to know his will on everything is he the one you take your big and small concerns to are the words of Christ living inside of you because this is what happens when the words of Christ are living inside of you they come out they have to, they're living and active looking for a place to go do they abide in you Do they shape you and your prayers? Do they spill out when you talk to God? The second fruit Jesus mentions is obedient love. A striking truth in this passage is that Jesus loves you the same way that the Father loves him. Verse 9. As the Father loved me, I also have loved you. Abide in my love. So God loves Jesus, and in turn, Jesus loves you with the same type of deep, deep love. And in response to this deep, deep love of Jesus, you love him and demonstrate your love through obedience. Verse 10. If you keep my commandments, you will abide in my love just as I have kept my Father's commandments and abide in his love. So the way we abide in Jesus is to remain in his love. And the way we remain in his love is by keeping his commandments. And this is nothing new. Jesus already does this. This is how Jesus loved the Father. By keeping his commandments. And it's how we love Jesus. Now, Jesus isn't saying, if you, if you want my love first, you have to obey. You know, you obey, and then in response, I will love you. Verse 9 makes it crystal clear that Christ's love for you comes first. We love him because, and only because, he first loved us. So your love for him is is a response to his love for you. That's settled in scripture. What Jesus is actually saying is, if you love me, you'll show it by your obedience. Obedience doesn't earn love. Obedience is the evidence of love. We, We can say that it's necessary because it is, but it doesn't cause God's love. It's a response to it. So if there's no obedience, then then you're not a Christian. Not because obedience makes you a Christian, but because obedience is the evidence of having become a branch, a vital branch on the vine. Here's how Josh Redberg and Matt Carter put it in their book, Exalting Jesus in John. Referring to verse 10, they write, How does this text speak to the person who claims to be a Christian but is living in willful, persistent disobedience to Jesus. It says to such a person, you don't love Jesus. You don't bear the fruit of love. Therefore, the life of Jesus is not in you. And you will will be cast into the fire and burned. True Christians obey Jesus. Across our country and around the world are people who claim to follow Jesus but don't. It's spiritual insanity to say, I'm a follower of Jesus, but I don't follow what Jesus says. I love Jesus, but I don't listen to him. No, you don't. Faith without works is dead. A disciple who doesn't obey is not a disciple. He's a fraud. If Jesus lives in you, you cannot help but produce the fruit of loving obedience. His life in you will cause you to love what he loves, to treasure his words and to obey, not out of duty, but out of joy. You will delight in doing what Jesus wants you to do because he lives in you and is shaping your heart to be like his. End quote. Even though Jesus is our master and therefore has the authority to demand our obedience, and does, he doesn't treat us like slaves. Skip down to verses 14 and 15. Jesus says, you are my friends if you do whatever I command you. No longer do I call you slaves, would be an even better translation, for a slave or servant does not know what his master is doing. But I have called you friends. For all things that I heard from my Father, I have made known to you. There's a certain kind of master who gives commands to his slaves with no explanations. And these slaves are not in the know. They do simply what they're told. But Jesus is a different kind of master. He invites you into his inner circle as his friend. He is your king and he is your master, your Lord and your God, not your equal. So he does give you commands that you must obey. But he does so in the context of a friendship that he's established with you through the cross. And this friendship makes obeying him a delight, especially when we remember that this friendship was based on him laying down his life for us, for you. If obeying Jesus is a delight to you, if, if obeying his commandments is something that brings you joy and you delight in doing it, then you have entered into an eternal friendship with Jesus by his grace. The third fruit Jesus mentions here is unspeakable joy. Joy. Verse 11 says, these things I have spoken to you that my joy may abide in you and that your joy may be full, filled up. Fullness of joy is a mark of a a true disciple of Jesus. And notice that that twofold, the, the repetition of the word joy in verse 11 there. First, Jesus says, my joy. And then he says, your joy. The joy of the disciple is the joy of Jesus. This is important because the joy of Jesus was never deterred by suffering or any other circumstance. In fact, Christ rejoiced in his suffering and his afflictions and his hardship Hebrews 12:2 says that Jesus for the joy that was set before him endured the cross he endured the shame of the cross for joy it brought him joy to do so where how is that where does that kind of joy come from where did Jesus find the joy That he had in taking up his Roman cross, being forsaken by the Father. Well, he found this joy in the midst of his intense desire to obey his Father, to do God's will. Jesus could pray Psalm 16, verses 8 and 9, which I've been listening to lately a lot, he could pray it with an undivided heart. I have set the Lord always before me. Because he is at my right hand, I shall not be shaken. Therefore, my heart is glad and my whole being rejoices. He, he could pray this and believe this even while hanging on the cross. And the last verse of that psalm says this In your presence, there is fullness of joy. At your right hand, are pleasures. Forevermore. unshakable joy unshakable pleasures no circumstance can undermine it joy in jesus is inseparable from knowing and following him you can't have one without the other having abiding joy doesn't mean that every day is easy or filled with fun and laughter, but it does mean your life is marked by a confidence in Jesus, and a confidence that Jesus is more satisfying than anything on offer by the world. The pleasure and the fullness of joy at God's right hand run deeper and wider than any earthly joy or any earthly Sorrow. Christian joy isn't a substance to be transferred, a substance to be received, a thing that you get from God as a transaction of some sort. It's a relationship to be enjoyed. Jesus invites you into a friendship in which his joy becomes your joy in this union, you can't have it without the union and you definitely get it with the union. He brings you joy by giving you his joy because he brings you into his joy so that your joy like his is filled up to the brim and overflowing. The picture in verse 11 is of a joy that abides and a joy that abounds, a joy that remains and a joy that runs over the joy of Christ engulfs us and then it fills us. Is the joy that Jesus is talking about in this passage, is it good enough for you? Or do you long for something else, something that seems better? You still haven't found what you think it is that will satisfy you. Does God's presence bring with it for you fullness of joy and pleasures forevermore? Does Jesus have enough joy for you? You still need something more. The Lord's storehouse of joy is infinite, His resources are endless. So when his joy truly becomes your joy, your joy will be full to the point of overflowing. Verse 11, the the verse about joy, follows the two verses about obedience. Did you notice that? Now, we might be tempted to think that joy and obedience are mutually exclusive. But that's, we're tempted by that lie because it's the lie that goes all the way back to the very beginning in Genesis 3. It's the lie that Satan has been telling from the beginning. The lie is that choosing a life of obedience is essentially, it's tantamount to choosing a life of misery. But the truth is that joy comes through by way of obedience obedience is the path to joy obedience is the the house that that joy lives in that joy abides in joy comes on the far side of obedience just as verse 11 comes on the far side of verses 9 and 10 The fourth fruit that Jesus mentions is sacrificial love. In verse 12, Jesus says, This is my commandment, that you love one another as I have loved you. Now, we we can imagine how Jesus can love us the way the Father has loved him, right? That's, That's easy to believe. But how, this seems like a possible standard for me, though, how... How am I supposed to love others the way Jesus has loved me? Well, the only, the only way anything like this is possible for me, the only way I can, I can begin to approach this is if Jesus lives inside of me and empowers me to love the way he loves To that extent, I can do it. To the extent that he empowers me to love the way he loves, I can do it. And this is is the third time in the last three chapters that Jesus has made love the defining characteristic of, of the disciple of Christ. And how is this love demonstrated? What's it look like? Verse 13 says that it's Demonstrated through sacrifice. Greater love has no one than this than to lay down one's life for his friends. So we've seen that it's demonstrated through obedience. That's the way to the joy. But it's also how we show God, show Jesus that we love him, show the world that we love Jesus. But also sacrifice. We have to put sacrifice in there. Because that's the essence of greater, the greatest love. Jesus sacrificed his life for you and says that the ultimate act of love, the ultimate act of friendship is laying your life down for others, for one another. So the highest form, the greatest expression of love is not romantic or sentimental or erotic, but... Sacrificial. Jesus ends this section with a note on the fruit of love. He says in verse 17, These things I command you that you love one another. Does, does sacrificial love characterize you? Does it characterize us as a body? Does it define the way you relate? To your wife, or your husband, or your children, or your kids, or your parents, or your roommate, or your friends, or your co-workers. To the, the members of this body. Does it characterize your relationships? John thirteen thirty five says, Everyone will know that you are my, my disciples if you have love for one another. Does the world know that the members of Christ the King Church are disciples of Jesus Christ? Are we known for our love one for another? The message of Christ in these first 17 verses of John 15 have been that Jesus is the true vine and true branches bear fruit. Branches that are vitally connected to that vine, to the true vine, bear fruit. If there's no fruit, there's no true disciple. And, and that, that phrase, true disciple, Jesus actually puts it that way in, in John 8, truly my disciple. Because there's a difference between Disciples and true disciples, those who are following Jesus at some level externally, but they're going to show themselves not to be vitally connected at all, and those who are vitally connected and thus bearing fruit. If God has taken up residence in you, you're going to be different. You're going to look different. You're you're going to live differently, and and you're going to love differently. You're going to speak differently. You're going to respond differently to hatred differently. And this difference in you is not due to your own spiritual resources. The difference is due to the work of Jesus for you and in you, working from the inside out of you. Jesus is alive and at work in his people, in his disciples, in true believers. The sap of the vine fills and nourishes the branches that are connected to it. A healthy pear tree branch produces pears. A healthy apple tree branch produces apples. A healthy cherry tree branch produces cherries. And a healthy follower of Christ produces empowered prayer obedient love, unspeakable joy, and sacrificial love. Let's pray and ask for God to do this in us. Father, you are the gardener, you are the vine dresser. Prune us, continue to prune us, each of us, so that we become more like Jesus in the way we live and continue to give us the grace that we need to to produce the fruit of the Holy Spirit, to produce empowered prayer and obedient love and unspeakable joy and sacrificial love in our lives, in our families, in our body, at at the workplace, in, in our homes, in all of our relationships. In all of our circles of influence, we want to be producing this fruit. So work it in us. Do what you must in all of us and in each of us to make us bear more fruit. We ask for this in the name of Jesus. Amen.